I believe at any time and in any situation, it's always okay to shout glory to your name. I mean, because your name is above every name. And at the sound of your name, every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so because of all of that, it's always okay to praise him. Lord, we thank you. We honor you. We praise you. We worship you today. Every day is the day that you have made, and because of that, Lord, we will rejoice and be glad. Thank you. Now we pray, Lord God, that you would lower us down into the depths of your treasure and allow us to come up afresh and anew. Allow us, Lord God, to dip our bucket in an old well and prayerfully bring up some fresh water. We thank you. We praise you. And then, Lord God, my prayer, as always, is that it would be all of you, none of me, that you would increase as I decrease. The words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, we have made it to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Amen. And from Romans chapter 11, we'll use today for a subject, God's grand plan. God's grand plan. Would you allow me to share with you an unfortunate fact of life related to not God's plans, but our plans? Would you allow me to share that with you this morning? Now, let me just say, give this caveat, what I'm about to share with you is not breaking news, and most of us already know this, but just want to share it with you anyway. Here it is, our bright ideas. Our visions and our grand plans often start well. Y'all know where I'm going with this. They often start well, but just as frequently as they start, they often fizzle out along the way. It happens for various reasons. But all of us can confess that we've had some plans. And that for whatever reason along the way, Kevin, they've fallen apart. There's some, there's some different reasons uh, when that happens. Um, sometimes the reasons for the fizzle are all our own fault. Oftentimes the reasons are our fault. Reasons like lack of focus or being distracted along the way. Uh, how about this one, laziness? Oh, y'all can relate to that one. <laughs> I hear the nerve, it came down somebody's street right there. What, what about this one, poor planning in the beginning? 
Poor planning can cause, brother Sam, a fizzle in the middle. What about this one? What about selfishness? Selfishness can destroy our plan before it materializes. And then here's another one. How about you've gotten in it, but you don't know how to manage it, so mismanagement causes it to fall apart before it comes to fruition. Some of the reasons then are our fault. There's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, some reasons are beyond our control. Reasons like having a genuine desire and commitment to finish the course, but being limited by our abilities and our capacity as human beings. We can't control that. We just, there's only so much we can do. We're limited in our capacity. We're limited in our abilities. There's some things that I wish I could do, but just physically I can't do it. And that's not my fault, right? So some of these things are beyond our control. Maybe there are these plans and these grand plans and these visions that we have are rudely interrupted and stopped by something or somebody else. I mean, that happens. We can't control that. Sometimes it's beyond our control. Sometimes it's just interrupted or stopped by somebody or something else. Uh, This is, most of you know, this is Black History Month. And uh, because it's Black Black History Month, but not just because of that, but but in particular because that I'm reminded of someone that kind of fits that, that I just described, uh, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman, if you haven't seen, by the way, the movie Harriet, I would highly recommend that you see that movie. It is an awesome movie movie that tells her story step by step. It's fascinating to see her life played out on the big screen. I would strongly recommend it. Harriet Tubman had a great plan. She had a great plan to see all people set free. Harriet was born into slavery in Maryland. She escaped to freedom in the North in 1849 to become the most famous conductor of the Underground Railroad. Tubman risked her life to lead hundreds of family members and other slaves from the plantation system to freedom on this elaborate secret network of safe houses. She was a leading abolitionist before the Civil War. She also helped the Union Army during the the war, working as a spy, among other things. Originally, her name was Armenta Harriet Ross. Uh, She was nicknamed Minty by her parents. Armenta later changed her name to Harriet, possibly to honor her mother. It's said that she suffered some injuries in her younger life. One noted injury in particular was a head injury that she suffered as a teenager when an angry overseer threw a two-pound weight that struck her in the head. And as a result, she endured seizures for her whole life. Severe headaches and narcoleptic episodes plagued her the rest of her life. But she also, if you see the movie, you'll see this, she also experienced intense dream states. And she considered those states to be religious experiences. She felt like 
she was hearing the very voice and the very word of God speak to her during these times. Between 1850 and 1860, Tubman made 19 trips from the south to the north following the network known as the Underground Railroad. She guided more than 300 people, including her parents and several siblings, from slavery to freedom, earning the nickname Moses for her leadership. Later in life, she remained active even during the Civil War, working for the Union Army as a cook and a nurse. She also quickly became an Army scout and a spy, as I said earlier, uh, she was the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. She guided uh, the Combahee River raid, which liberated more than 700 slaves in South Carolina. Harriet died of pneumonia on March the 10th of 1913, surrounded by friends and family at around the age of 93. She was buried with military honors at Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn, New York. She, Harriet, she certainly had good intentions and a grand plan. And not only that, she was able to accomplish a lot in her life. But she was unfortunately unable to fully complete the work that she started due to Human limitations, she was only able to do so much. She did all that she could, but she was limited because of, of, of her humanity. And ultimately, she was not able to complete her work because she was rudely interrupted by age, illness, and death. Age, illness, and death. Brother Sam said that'll do it. And I agree, if you just keep going to bed and keep waking up, you'll find out that those things will rudely, Courtney, interrupt your grand plans. Amen. So she was only able to do so much. But here it is. I'm so glad that we serve a God. I said, I'm so glad that we serve a God who can't be interrupted unless he decides to be. Age is not a factor with God. Death, Brother Kimmy, is no match for our God. He never loses focus, unlike us. He always finishes the course. Here it is. Whatever he starts, he finishes. A reminder of what Paul writes in Philippians 1.6. Paul says this in Philippians 1.6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He always finishes what he starts. Not only that, but whatever he promises, he brings to pass. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to, the glory, to God for, uh, for his glory. Whatever he promises, he brings to pass. Whatever 
he decrees is irrevocable. Whatever he decrees will not change. Here's what Numbers 23, 19 says about that. It says this, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Nothing can interrupt God's plan. The only time it's interrupted is when he decides that he wants to do that. We have come on our journey through Romans. We've come to the end of this section of Paul's letter, which includes chapters 9 through 11. These chapters, as you know, serve as Paul's treatise on the relationships between the Lord Israel and the church. The question underlying chapters 9 through 11 is, why? We always want to know that, don't we? We always want to know why. I remember growing up as a kid. Uh, it, may be, it may be something that will land you uh, in, in critical condition. Some of y'all can't relate to that, but some of y'all that's laughing, you can. Maybe you've been to the hospital because you asked why. It's, not, it's really not a good question to ask if you're a child, you know, why, you know. Either, either, either you, you, you may end up being severely uh, injured or severely embarrassed, <laughs> it, right? So some of you that can't relate to the injured part can at least relate to the embarrassed part because you do it to your children. Now, I know I do. Don't ask me why because I said so, right? But that's the question that always plagues us. We always want to know the question why, and that is the prevailing question of this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11. Why are the vast majority of the Jews failing to experience God's promised blessings? While many Gentiles are coming to faith in Israel's Messiah and abounding in his kindness. Why is this happening? Well, in chapter 9, Paul argued that it was not the word of God that had failed because God never promised blessing on the basis of works or physical descent, but on the basis of mercy displayed on the basis of God's sovereign and independent choice. We saw that in chapter 9. Then we, we visited chapter 10. And when we visited chapter 10, Paul reminded us of this. He added that correspondingly Israel rejected God. Israel had rejected God. They refused the salvation offered by the Lord and by his apostles. They rejected him. Now, We've made it to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, the curtains are pulled back. In chapter 11, God's plan is fully revealed as it has been laid out all the way. We get to chapter 11 and it becomes clear. God has temporarily, remember that word because that's key to this passage. That's key to this chapter. God has temporarily, remember that word. Harden the Jews so that salvation may come to the Gentiles, even as the scriptures have stated. The salvation of Gentiles will provoke Israelites so that they will eventually turn to God. Israel's failure is neither total, it's not total, because there is, we'll see in a minute, a faithful remnant, nor is it permanent. In God's good time, 
Israel will be restored to a place of national prominence and blessing. So it's not permanent and it's not complete. It's not total. So Paul teaches us here that God always has a plan and that God's plan will be fulfilled completely. Always. He always. Did y'all hear what I said? I'm checking to see if y'all are awake because he always, no matter the situation, Warren, no matter what it is, he always, those, that word is bolded and in all caps in my notes. Because always means always and God absolutely always has a plan and God's plan will always be seen through to its completion. The unfolding of God's plan here in Romans 11 is indicative of God's plan in other places. What do I mean? Everywhere you see evidence of God's plan, you see certain constant elements that are present. Romans chapter 11 is no different. Those constant elements that are always present in God's plans are present right here in Romans chapter 11. Well, well, so I know I hear you asking the question, what are those elements? I know I heard you, somebody, I heard somebody ask that question. If you didn't, I need to suggest you, you need to ask me that question. <laughs> there you go, thank you. Thank you, Dave. Uh, the, so these, these, these elements that I'm about to share with you that are found in Romans 11, you will notice that you will be able to, if you look back on what God has done, apply or look for these very same elements in all of what God does. They're always present. First one is this. You'll be familiar with it. It's called grace. It's called grace. Grace. Y'all know anything about grace? Anybody here, wave your hand if you know anything about grace. If you know anything about grace, you know what I know, that, that grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. I love what Paul writes about grace in Ephesians chapter 2, that all-famous passage, verses 8 and 9. Here is what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. He says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. First thing we see in Romans 11 is God's grace on display. It's in verses 1 through 10. Let's read it real quick since we haven't read any of this text yet. Let's read verses 1 through 10. It says this, uh, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so that at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. But it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. 
What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. God's grace is evident as an element of his plan in verses 1 through 10. It's God's unmerited favor. In other words, you didn't work for it. You don't deserve it. It's not about you. It's about what God chooses to do. Uh, Can I give you a quick illustration of grace? There's a guy who's walking along the street in a tourist area, and he comes across a street artist. You ever seen street artists? And, you know, oftentimes when they're on the street selling their art, uh, for profit, they, they do a pretty good job. They, 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 they are pretty good at what they do. So he sits down and asks the artist to draw his picture. The artist takes the liberty of adjusting, making some adjustments to what he draws, and he changes some of the features of this man, like his hair. He changes it a little bit. He changes his nose a little bit. He changes his ears a little bit. And he hands the picture to the man. The man is angry and upset, and he says to the artist, What is this? What is this that you've given me? This is not, this picture that you drew does not do me justice. And the artist said, sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need grace. (laughs) That's what grace is. Grace is giving you what you need, but what you don't deserve. Right? And oftentimes, that's, that's what, that's, we're in that same predicament as that man. We don't know it, but what we need is grace, and we can't do anything to earn it. It is just given to us by grace. And so, we fall victim to the most, oftentimes, the most dangerous heresy on earth placing the emphasis on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. We fall victim to that. Uh, It's the heresy held by the ones who quote that famous Bible verse. Y'all will be familiar with this one when I quote it to you. You can probably tell me where it is. God helps those who helps themselves. Somebody tell me where that is because I'm just saying, can you help me? It's, it's, It's popular. Anybody, you know why you can't tell me? Because it's not in the Bible, right? It's not there. It's not there. We like, it's quoted, but it's not there. But we have to be careful with, with, with having that mentality. It's also, this heresy is the same one that's often propagated by many high school valedictorians when they give their graduation commencement speech. They often quote William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. Can I read it to you real quick? It says this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall 
find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Y'all see something there? It's an errant thought. It's errant thinking. Paul reminds the Jews and us, by the way, that they are not the captains of their souls and that God has not totally rejected them. They were beginning to believe uh, the words of this poem even before this poem was written, that I am the captain. Paul has to remind them what God has done, number one, and that number two, it does not have anything to do. What God has decided to do is not because of anything they did to deserve it or to not deserve it, but, be, but rather by his grace. So, so, so you need to remember that. What God decides to do doesn't have anything to do with what you did. It's only because we don't merit what God does for us. So then, in verses 1 through 6, we are given three reasons why God has not totally forsaken Israel as a nation. In verse 1, uh, the Apostle Paul gives this reason because he says, I am a believing Jew, right? That's, that's what he says in verse 1. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, God has, totally, has not totally forsaken, forsaken the Jews, and I can prove it because I myself am a believing Jew. Paul replies in astonishment, may it never be. Paul himself was a forceful argument against any claim that God had rejected the nation of Israel. Paul himself was a believing Jew. Paul, you know Paul, Paul used to be in his prior life this Paul, who was Saul, used to be quite a scoundrel. Y'all know what a scoundrel is. He used to be that. And Paul refers to him, Paul refers to himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, as a chief of sinners. And if an ex-scoundrel, this is what Paul seems to say, if an ex-scoundrel. You know, let me just give a, a side to that. Do you know that all of us have an ex in front of our name, hopefully. Y'all not agreeing with me, but that's okay. You don't have to agree because you used to be something right now. <laughs> hopefully you're not what you used to be, right? All of us have, and Paul is an ex-scoundrel, and Paul seems to say to them, if an ex-scoundrel like me can be received into the family of God, God can do it for anybody. If he can take me in, turn me around, place my feet on solid ground, wash me, and all of that regenerate me, certainly he can do it for anybody. He can do it for Israel. And then secondly, in verse 2, the first part of verse 2, uh, he, he gives this reason, because God predestined Israel to be his people. God predestined Israel to be, look at what he says. It says, God, in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It means that he had already predestined and foreknew them to be his people. Israel can be assured because of this, of future blessing, because God's calling and his calling, his calling, his, his, his plan and election are irrevocable. We'll see that in verse 29 shortly. And then Paul 
uh, goes on in verses 2b through 6 to give another reason. God has had a remnant in every age, even in Elijah's day. And so he pulls out this illustration, this example of what happened with Elijah to prove that God has not totally forsaken Israel, that there is today, even then, a remnant that God has prepared. Paul draws from the life of Elijah to demonstrate the fact that God always has this remnant. Elijah thought he was all alone in his devotion to the Lord, but God reminded Elijah that there were more than 7,000 who had not bowed to Baal. God has always kindled the fires of Israel's hope by maintaining a faithful remnant. You remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19 when he, he challenges Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. You remember that. Paul says, gather together the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the grove and meet me on Mount Carmel. And when you get there, cut some wood up and get a sacrifice and put the sacrifice on the wood and you call on your God. You know why he does this? Because Israel had begun to follow these false gods. And he feels like it's his duty to prove to them that these false gods are not the real God. And so he says, Ahab, I'm sick of this. Ahab, when he sees him, says, are you the one who's been troubling Israel? Elijah says, no, you're the one. You and Jezebel, you're the ones that have been troubling Israel. He says, get me 400. And I tell you what, let's do this. Get 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the grove. Meet me on Mount Carmel. You get a bull. I'll get a bull. Let's cut some wood. And we put our bulls on the, on the wood and see whose God answers first by fire. Y'all remember the story? Prophets of Baal get the wood, they put the sacrifice on the wood, and they begin to call on their God all day, the text says, and all night, oh, Baal, hear us. Nothing happens. They throw themselves on the wood because they're frustrated, and then the text says, around midday, Elijah begins to mock them. Well, how's that going for you? <laughs> Uh, he doesn't seem to be answering you. Maybe, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's talking. Maybe he's on a journey. Or I tell you what, maybe he's sleeping. Elijah said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. They begin to cut themselves. Elijah says, I tell you what we'll do. It's my turn now. So Elijah says, get me a bull. Cut me some wood. Build me an altar. Put the bull on the altar. But then don't stop there. Before, you do, before I do anything, get me some water. And pour water on the wood first. And then pour water on the sacrifice. And don't do it just one time, but do it three times. Fill everything, drown everything with water. And the text says there was so much water that the trench was even full of water. And Elijah prays, God, your people have gone astray. And I need you to show up right now. And he calls on God, and God answers by fire. And burns up the sacrifice and licks up the water in the trench. And the people are astonished. They decide our God is the real God. Here's the thing, though. 
Here's what, here's, here's, what, here's what Paul references in Romans 11. After this great moment of victory, that's the reason why you have to be very careful when you have these high moments of victory because oftentimes right after high points of victory come low points of depression. Don't ever get too high. Don't ever get too low. Paul goes on the run because Jezebel hears about it and says, I'm coming after you. So he stops, he falls asleep, he's distressed, he's depressed. Angel of the Lord wakes him up, says, go on about your way, eat, eat, because you're going to need food for this journey. Then he goes into a cave, and the Bible says that while in the cave, God comes to him, not in a thunderstorm, not in loud, but in a small, still voice. You know that voice that I don't know how to use. I figured I'd get some response from that. And says to Elijah, among other things, look, Elijah, I know you feel like you're the only one. I know you feel like you're all in this by yourself. But let me tell you something. I have 7,000 prophets in the land who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You're not in this alone because I have a grand plan. So Paul uses this moment in biblical history from 1 Kings 18 and 19 to encourage Israel that just as he spoke to Elijah, he's speaking to them now and to us now. He's saying, always in every age have a remnant. So one element that's always present in God's plan is grace. But as I heard to a close, I need to show you. Uh, well, don't get excited because I'm not quite to the close yet. But I'm hurrying there. I need to show you. <laughs> I need to show you there's another one. There's another element that's always present is this grace and then grafting. Grafting is always present. Look at what it says. I'm not going to read all of this to you. But look at what it says in, in uh, chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. Uh, here's what it says. I just want to read part of this because I got to hurry. I don't want to. Okay, this is what, look at what it says here. And, and starting in verse 19, it says, Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because their unbelief, but because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Grafting is always present in God's plan. It's a Greek word. Y'all want to say this Greek word with me? It's a Greek word, inkatrizo. Can you say that? Inkatrizo. You have to put that accent in there. Inkatrizo, like you're in Greece. Right? It, it, it means this, to unite with the stock of a growing plant. And God's grafting is always present in all of his plans. To graft is to unite a scion with a stock. A scion is a living portion of a plant. And a stock is that part of a plant uh, that grafts, that, that, that graft, you graft into that provides the roots. Uh, it, it, it's often referred to in olive trees. Olives were frequently caused to multiply by removing shoots from the base of a cultivated tree and grafting them onto the trunks of a wild olive tree. It's grafting. 
And in verses 11 through 16, Paul's illustration here portrays the incomprehensible grace of God who does what no farmer would do. Break off cultivated limbs representing the descendants of Israel to graft in wild limbs representing Gentile believers. And that's what God does. He does what no actual farmer would, would ever do. He takes off these cultivated limbs and grafts in these wild limbs, right? And in verses 17 through 24, uh, the illustration also serves to them as a warning. I just read to you, it's a warning to believing Gentiles not to be proud and despise the contribution of the Israelites who made their faith possible, but to stand firm in their faith. Don't get too proud, he says to, to, the, to the Gent. He warns them, you've been grafted in, but don't take it for granted. Don't get too proud. Don't forget how you got here, right? Don't forget how you got here. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, somebody say, but now. But now, I preached a sermon entitled that one time. Y'all remember that? But now, I love that, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been grafted in, he says to them, and God's plan always involves grafting. Everywhere we see God's hand at work and his plan in action, we see grafting. Uh, him taking something that doesn't belong and making it belong. We see it in creation. We see it when he originally chooses Israel as his chosen people. We see it in every person he ever used individually, including you and me. Because no, you know what? We didn't belong, but he made us to belong. Uh, you look all throughout biblical history, everybody God uses didn't belong, but he grafted them in. So it's not just present here in, in Romans 11. It's present everywhere. Anytime you see God's hand at work, you will see this grafting happening. And then so we see, we see, we see grace. We see grafting. Then the next I want to share with you, we also see guarantee. Anytime you see God's plan happening, anytime you see God's plan at work, you'll see guarantee. It's in verses 25 through 32. Let's read those real quick. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come up, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And th in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the devil will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I, when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of, the, of their forefathers, for, the, for their gifts and callings of God, for the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient, but God now have, but God, but now have God, res wait, going too fast. All right. <laughs> Start over with 30. But for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, because of their disobedience. 
So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you that they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We see in all of God's plan, guarantee. God's plan guarantees that national salvation in 25 through 32, that national salvation will come to Israel and that, he says, hasn't changed since Martha. He's guaranteeing it to them. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah 31 uh, and will be realized when Jesus returns to earth to set up his kingdom. He has guaranteed it to them, and he's not going to fail on that. Paul, in this passage, weaves together uh, Psalm 14, 7, Isaiah 59, 20, 21, and Jeremiah 31, 31 to show that he understood the Old Testament literally and that the Old Testament prophesied Israel's deliverance from sin. So he weaves it together to prove that point. The point is this. God cannot do otherwise than fulfilling his guarantee because of his promises to the fathers and his unconditional covenant he made with them. It's irrevocable. Verse 29 says that it can't change. He can't go back on it. It's unconditional. So God will guarantee what he said will happen in the Old Testament. It will come to pass, even though for Israel, things didn't feel like they were going to happen. It didn't seem too good for them at the moment. But Paul says there's a guarantee that God has made. And when God makes a guarantee, you can take it to the bank. Anybody believe that? Anybody here believe that when God makes a guarantee, you can take it to the bank? We see God's guarantees all throughout Scripture in his plan. In Scripture, in his plan, plans all throughout Scripture, we see his guarantee. Here, here's one that I'd like to share with you. We don't have to fear because he is with us. We don't have to fear because he's with us. This is what uh, prophet Isaiah writes. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because God has guaranteed that he'll be with us. And I don't know about you, but I've never been in a place, Stephanie, I've never been in a place that God wasn't there with me. I feel like I'm up here preaching by myself. It's okay. I, I, I can get happy all by myself. I don't, that's okay. It's all right. Because, listen, when I think about all that I've been through and I remember that God has always walked with me and talked with me and reminded me that I am his own and the joy that we've shared while we've lingered there, nobody else has ever known. He is always with us. It's a guarantee. Not only does he guarantee that, he also guarantees us that nothing that comes against us will prosper. Here's what Isaiah writes about it in Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. I, listen, I promise if you pray with me, it will be about three more minutes. I know y'all got your eyes on the clock. Just pray with me. We're going to get through this. But you need to hear this. You need to know that nothing that comes against you shall prosper. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Isaiah says, no weapon that is formed against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. That is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. It's a guarantee that God has given us. He also guarantees us his forgiveness. I'm just helping you remember some of these guarantees. 
And as you remember them, you reflect on the fact that he's never let, he's never not brought one to pass. He guarantees that he'll forgive us. First John 1 and 9 says this, uh, God is faithful and just forgive us of our sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a guarantee. He guarantees us hope and a future. Y'all know where I'm going with this one, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. What does it say? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Listen, that is not a maybe. That's a guarantee. And then lastly, the guarantee I want to share with you is this. He guarantees eternal life for those that believe. All y'all that's been to Sunday school, even if you haven't been to Sunday school, if you've been to a sporting event, you know this one, right? <laughs> For God, John 3.16, y'all help me. Y'all can talk with me. For God so loved the world, gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So in all of God's plans, we see these constant elements, grace, grafting, guarantee. And finally, we made it to the last one, and it's glory. Glory, somebody shout glory. In verses 33 through 36, listen, in any time you see God's plan, you'll see his glory. In time you see his plan, his glory is always present. This is what 33 through 36 says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and, his, and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For him, for from him, let me, let me say it again, for from him, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There is only one response appropriate to what Paul has taught us in Romans chapters 11, 9 through 11. It's not accusation, but acclamation. The sovereignty of God is summed up in verse 36. For from, from him, right, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is the source of all things. He's the channel of all things. He's the goal of all things. And man's only proper response to God is worship, to worship him. Because all creation, including us, is here for his glory. And his glory is present Throughout all of his plans, remember God has a plan and we are part of his plan, even though we don't always understand it. Uh, I'll share this illustration with you and then I'm going to sit down. It's been said that we are like ants crawling across a painting by Rembrandt. We crawl across the dark brown and think all of life is dark brown. Then we hit green and think, oh, this is better. Now all is green. But, some, but soon comes the dark blue and then a splash of yellow, a streak of red, and then another patch of brown. On we journey from one color to another, never realizing that God is actually painting a masterpiece in our lives using all the colors of the palette. 
One day we will learn that every color has its place, had a reason. Nothing was wasted or out of place. Just as there's a time and a season for everything, there's also a color for every stage of life's journey. When the painting is finished, we will discover that we were part of his masterpiece from the very beginning. We were part of his masterpiece from the very beginning. So can I share this final thought with you? Here it is. Time is the canvas on which God does his painting. And eternity is the perspective from which we will see the beauty of his handiwork. God has a grand plan. And he who hath begun a good work will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grand plan. Thank you for those elements of your grand plan. Thank you for grace. Thank you for grafting. Thank you for guarantee. Thank you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.